God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles to Job chapter 32 and then in verse 1. We're again in the book on God's behalf. And in Job chapter 32, verse 1, we read, So these three men, remember this is Elipaz, Bildad, and Zophar, ceased to answer Job because, and this was the reason, he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barako, the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. The structure of the book of Job reveals the great importance of Elihu's ministry in preparing Job to hear from the Lord directly. The book of Job as a whole, looking at the introduction again, we have A, the introduction, the historical part of Job, B, Satan's assault, Job stripped of all, C, the three friends and their arrival, D, Job and his friends, E, Elihu, D, Jehovah and Job, C, the three friends and their departure, B, Satan's defeat, Job blessed with double, and A, finally the conclusion and the end of the historical record. Elihu is the only individual whose message Job does not refute. The only individual who could silence Job's critics and the only human character in the book whom God also does not reprove and correct himself. This alone should draw our attention to this relatively obscure biblical figure. Perhaps then, Elihu was exactly who he claimed himself to be, one sent to speak on God's behalf. And in Job chapter 36, verse 2, we read, Suffer me a little, and these are Elihu's words, and I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. The reason as to why Job could not be persuaded of his guilt, nor have his conscience convict him of sin, was because he was righteous in his own eyes. Yet, when men are righteous in their own sight and claim innocence before God, God will often send a minister. This is repeated throughout human history. The blindness of men requiring physical messengers led by the Holy Spirit to help open men's ears so they can hear the great lessons critical for their deliverance. Lessons like personal righteousness is never more than God's and that it is always a sin against heaven to justify self more than God. Elihu, the son of Barak the Buzite, was the one chosen to introduce these lessons to Job in order to prepare his heart for the entrance of Jehovah himself. Elihu's ministry, consequently, was purposed to prepare for a much greater ministry to follow it, the ministry of God himself. And as John the Baptist prepared the world for Christ, so here Elihu does the same in preparing Job for God. Thus, for five uninterrupted chapters, Elihu speaks with Job offering no retort nor disagreement with any of his words, as Job had previously done with his other accusers. And while before Job had resisted the harsh reasoning of his friends, once Elihu begins his address, he remains silent. The words of the Holy Spirit, spoken by messengers of God, often producing speechlessness in the hearers. 
the sword of the Spirit, piercing the sinner's heart so effectively that even the tongue is stopped from defending itself. Observe also that only by Elihu's spiritual ministry could the self-righteousness in Job be broken, whereas other friends' attempts had failed. God's Holy Spirit and the wisdom it provides in giving life's answers critical for conviction of sin to be accomplished. It taking actual and real prophecy from the Lord in order for a self-righteous man's heart to be touched so that God may teach him what he needs to know about both his sin and himself and why God is displeased with his life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24, we read, But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. As seen here, prophecy brought forth from the Lord will do for the unbelieving sinner what human thought and reason cannot by causing them to recognize the presence and the reality of God. This is accomplished by the Holy Spirit revealing to men that God knows the thoughts and intents of their heart. Barnes on this verse, 1 Corinthians 14, 24. The word here rendered convinced is rendered reproved in John 16, 8. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin. Its proper meaning is to convict, to show one to be wrong, and then to rebuke, reprove, admonish, etc. Here it means, evidently, that the man would be convicted or convinced of his error and of his sin. He would see that his former opinions and practice had been wrong. He would see and acknowledge the force and truth of the Christian sentiments which should be uttered and would acknowledge the error of his former opinions in life. The following verse shows that the apostle means something more than a mere convincing of the understanding or a mere conviction that his opinions had been erroneous. He evidently refers to what is now known as conviction for sin. That is a deep sense of the depravity of the heart, of the errors and follies of the past life, accompanied with mental anxiety, distress, and alarm. The force of truth and the appeals which should be made and the observation of the happy effects of religion would convince him that he was a sinner and show him also his need of a Savior, end quote. This is the impact when a man filled with God's Holy Spirit brings forth prophecy from the Lord, the power of God's Spirit, ultimately bringing man to conviction of sin. Hence, by God's own holy word, produced by the inspiration of the Spirit, sinners will be brought to their knees to both worship and acknowledge God as he should be. Once Elihu is finished speaking to Job in chapters 32 through 37, the Lord himself commences his own correction of Job in chapters 38 through 42. The Lord reproving Job for darkening counsel by words without knowledge and correcting him for disannulling God's judgments so that he, Job, 
could maintain his own righteousness. The carnal mind of man, often willing to condemn God and God's dealings with man to maintain innocence in its own sight. Hence, the last 11 chapters of the book of Job show us the great amount of heavenly correction needed to get Job to repent for what he genuinely did not know, that God is greater than man and that men have no proper grounds, either in thought or speech, to accuse God of injustice. And although Job had a fear of God, still he lacked much understanding concerning the works and dealings of God with man. It would therefore take both God's messenger, Elihu, and then Jehovah himself to fully instruct a self-righteous man in those things still deficient in his faith. Job's confession at the end of the book also helps us to understand the great lessons that were gained first through personal trial that Job experienced and then ultimately through the heavenly prophecy that was brought to him. And in Job chapter 42, verse 1, we read, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou, God, canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Verse 4 now, Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. Verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. And the result of this is, in verse 6, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. In Job's answer to the Lord, after both Elihu's and the Lord's correction, Job confesses that indeed it had been he who had hidden God's counsel by speaking words without knowledge, and that he, Job, had uttered things he understood not. This confession ultimately led him to repent in dust and ashes, teaching us that when God shows a God-fearing man his spiritual ignorance, he will repent. Again, there is little that will bring a truly spiritual man to repent sooner than when he realizes that so much of what he has spoken about the Lord has been revealed to him as wrong. Lost sheep also, seldom knowing their own condition, and especially so in regards to the sins they have committed against the Lord. Verse 2, now Job 32, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram, against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Elihu's anger is twofold. First, it is against Job's three friends for having found no answer for Job, yet still they had condemned him. Secondly, it is against Job, for Job justifying himself rather than God. Wherever also there are two parties with the exact same flaw of self-righteousness, Job and his three friends proving this, the revelation needed for deliverance will remain elusive. It is also a very common thing that when others cannot help the broken, that they will judge them instead. Job's friends had condemned their friend when in fact 
they should have spent more time analyzing themselves as to why they could not persuade him of any sin. To also simply condemn the lost and broken without having any answers to help them is strong evidence that men are not being led by God themselves. Whereas a truly spiritual man will be more than sufficiently aware that sin is common in all men and most importantly in himself. A sign of true spirituality will be manifested by when faults are observed in others, then restoration will be sought and not simply condemnation. Since it takes little wisdom to condemn others, but much greater wisdom to help men be restored to again enjoy fellowship with God. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, we read, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And now Job 32, verse 4. Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken, because they were elder than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men. Then his wrath was kindled. Elihu, in maintaining proper respect for those older than himself, waits until Job's other friends had finished speaking. It was only then when it became fully evident to Elihu that Ilipaz, Bildad, and Zophor could not help their friend that he felt he was given permission and spiritual authority from God to bring forth his own opinion. Teaching us also that it is not simply what we bring forth from the Lord to people that will result in their deliverance, but equally important when it is brought. A word fitly spoken is that word which is uttered at exactly the most opportune time. Examples of this include Peter's words in causing Israel to repent after the Holy Spirit had been sent and Israel had observed the miraculous powers of the Spirit. Nathan's words to David in informing him he was guilty of sinning against Uriah and Bathsheba, after David had shown indignation towards the man in Nathan's story. Hence, it is not enough to be given revelation from the Lord if we are not patient enough to wait upon him also as to when it should be spoken. There is therefore always a proper time to boldly hold forth God's word, even as there are times that God's spirit will instruct us to remain silent. Elihu had the wisdom as to when to do both. Ecclesiastes 3, 7, a time to ran and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Ecclesiastes 3, 7, this is Gil on this verse, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. When it is an evil time, a time of calamity in a nation, it is not a time to be loquacious and talkative, especially in a vain, ludicrous way, Amos 5.13. Therefore the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. Or to keep silence when a particular friend or relation is in distress, as in the case of Job and his friends, Job 2.13. So when they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Or again, when in the presence of wicked men, who make a jest of everything serious and religious, Psalm 39.1, I said, 
I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. And also so when under afflictive dispensations of providence, it is a time to be still and dumb and not open the mouth in a murmuring and complaining way. Leviticus uh, 10.3, Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh unto me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace, end quote. Indeed, it is wisdom to know when to speak and when to keep silent. And again, Elihu knew how to do both. Verse 6 now of Job 32. And Elihu, the son of Barakal the Buzite, answered and said, I am young and ye are very old. Wherefore I was afraid and durst not show you mine opinion. Matthew Henry on this verse. Elihu professes to speak by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and corrects both parties. He allowed that those who had the longest experience should speak first. But God gives wisdom as he pleases. This encouraged him to state his opinion. By attention to the word of God and dependence upon the Holy Spirit, young men may become wiser than the aged. But this wisdom will render them swift to hear, slow to speak, and disposed to give others a patient hearing, end quote. Youth alone does not disqualify a man for spiritual service. As Timothy was a young Christian leader when Paul gave to him the charge to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I charge thee, Paul speaking to Timothy, therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick or the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering doctrine. No doubt Elihu was a man like unto Timothy, whereby though he lacked in years, still God had chosen him for ministry. David also was the youngest of Jesse's sons when God anointed him, teaching us that as far as God is concerned, a humble young man is much more valuable to God than an aged old man who has not the humility to be taught of the Lord. The truth also is that, regardless of one's age in either life or ministry, the Lord Jesus said it was necessary that all men, if they desire to enter his kingdom, maintain the heart of a child. Mark 10, 15 now, this is Christ speaking. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. No matter a man's age and or rank in the church, without a tender and humble heart to be taught by God, as a son would be with a father, then heaven cannot be entered. Barnes on Mark 10, 15. Whosoever shall not receive, whosoever shall not manifest the spirit of a little child. As a little child, with the temper and spirit of a child, teachable, mild, humble, and free from prejudice and obstinacy, end quote. Matthew 18, uh, verse 3 now. And again, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, 
you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility should be that trait which should most manifest in the children of God, even as spiritual humility will both reveal and prove who are God's true children. Verse 7 now of Job 32, I said, Elihu again speaking, days should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. It is reasonable to think that the older men get, then the wiser they shall become. But this is hardly the case. For true wisdom is not imparted by years, but solely by God. It is thus the Lord who imparts wisdom to men's hearts, and not simply the length of years they live on the earth. Proverbs 2.6, For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Wisdom is the first gift of the Spirit listed in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, 4 to 1 is given by the Spirit, the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. This teaches us that for a man to possess the wisdom of God, then the Spirit of God must dwell in him. For it is from the Spirit that God's holy wisdom comes. Even as one cannot possess any of the gifts of the Spirit if he first lacks the Holy Spirit itself. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we read, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man or woman have not or has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Hence, just as the Holy Spirit is a gift to man, so also is the special gift of wisdom given by God's grace to men. King Solomon is recorded in Scripture as a man who was given by God through God's divine favor the gifts of wisdom and understanding. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is in and on the seashore. See, men generally have very small minds, constrained also by their rigidity and simpleness of thought. Yet God gave Solomon largeness of heart, the Lord enlarging his mind so that he could receive the great degree of spiritual wisdom and understanding that God had purposed for him, teaching us that the Lord has the ability to so open the mind of man that he can be then taught by God the spiritual mysteries of God. By then the Lord's own spiritual power, men can be brought to both perceive and believe in the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 13, verse 11, we read now, He Christ answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you, and this is the disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Yet if, peradventure, the Lord desires to withhold wisdom from men, then nothing attempted on their part can gain it. As God has kept it his right to either give wisdom to men or to withhold it from them. Ecclesiastes 8:17. Then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, farther, though a wise man 
think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. Gill on Ecclesiastes 8.17, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. He can find out that it is done, but not the reason why it is done. The ways of God are in the deep and not to be traced. They are unsearchable and past finding out. There is a depth of wisdom and knowledge in them, inscrutable by the wisest of men, end quote. And now verse 8 of Job 32. But there is a spirit in man, and again, these are Elihu's words, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. What Elihu was taught by God as to the source of his wisdom, few know today. Barnes on this verse. But there is a spirit in man. He now finds that wisdom is not the attribute of rank or station, but that it is the gift of God, and therefore it may be found in a youth. All true wisdom is the sentiment, is from above. And where the inspiration of the Almighty is, no matter whether the aged or the young, there is understanding. Elihu undoubtedly means to say that though he was much younger than they were, and though according to the common estimate in which the age and the young were held, he might be supposed to have much less acquaintance with the subjects under consideration. Yet, as all true wisdom came from above, he might be qualified to speak. The word spirit here therefore refers to the spirit which God gives. And the passage is a proof that it was an early opinion that certain men were under the teachings of divine inspiration, end quote. Through the influence and instruction of God's Spirit, men are brought by God to know things beyond this earthly realm. As God is able to teach those who have received His heavenly Spirit things that no natural man can come to know by his five senses, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But the natural man, this is a man absent the Spirit of God, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. It is thus impossible for a natural man, a man who does not possess God's Spirit, to know the things of the Spirit of God. If a man then has not the Spirit, then he can neither know God nor presume to know either why or how God deals with men as he does. This wisdom comes only through inspired spiritual action. Hence, for men to know anything truly right concerning the Lord, then God's Spirit must teach them. Fools also will die simply because they lack the necessary wisdom to be saved. Proverbs 10.21 The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want or lack of wisdom. And now verse 9 of Job 32. Great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. In reference to those older, Elihu reinforces his point that though Ilipaz, Bildad, and Zophar eclipsed him in years, did not mean that they were because of age, either wise or perceptive to any of God's judgments or thoughts. Job 32.10 Therefore I said, hearken to me, I also will show mine opinion. Elihu, 
understanding that the situation is ripe for needed instruction, now hearkens for those present to listen to him. The pulpit commentary on this verse. Therefore I said, hearken to me. Elihu evidently claims not exactly what is ordinarily understood by inspiration, but that his spirit is divinely enlightened and that therefore he is more competent to take part in the controversy that has been raised than many of the aged. I also will show mine opinion. I also, or even I, i.e. I, young as I am, will show my opinion or utter what I know on the subject. Elihu does not speak of his convictions as mere opinions, but claims to be in possession of actual knowledge, end quote. It is not pride to speak boldly for the Lord, especially when God is speaking through His Spirit to you. Demanding men's attention is also often important if God's deliverance is to be given to them. So that like with what Peter and John did at the Gate Beautiful, when they instructed the lame man to look on us, so does Elihu demand the same attention here. Observe also, that when spiritual men know that they have something useful and profitable to say on God's behalf, they will not lack the courage to challenge men to listen up. Seen also when Jonah heralded the prophecy of Nineveh's destruction, if Nineveh did not repent for its sin, when Jeremiah also cried in the ears of Jerusalem for its sin against God, and when John the Baptist with great boldness publicly proclaim Christ's coming. Hesitancy of speech, though, if it continues in one's life, will always indicate either timidity of faith or no faith at all, since it is not fear that God's Spirit will produce in man, but rather the boldness to openly hold forth God's Word, Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. The point being that if a man knows that God is inspiring him to bring forth a message from God, and God's spirit is working mightily in him, then he will express great urgency that people need to listen to his message. Verse 11 now of Job 32. Behold, and again Elihu speaking, I waited for your words. I gave ear to your reasons, whilst you searched out what to say. Verse 12 now, Yea, I attended unto you, and behold, there was none of you that convinced Job, or that answered his words. It is here that we should consider that Elihu is the author of the book of Job. Elihu's words, Behold, I waited for your words, I gave ear to your reasons, indicates that it was he who penned this marvelous historical account of a man afflicted by Satan, but then delivered by God. This would explain a lot, as really only two candidates fit the mold as to who would be most qualified to record the events of Job's life, either Elihu or Job himself. Personally, I find it quite amazing that one of the most obscure men in the Bible, the Lord very likely used to bring forth some of the most important and old truths of the Bible, teaching us that men need not possess a well-known name to be used as servants for God, but rather simply need to move as the Holy Spirit inspires them to. 
the Geneva Study Bible on this verse. Behold, I waited for your words. I gave ear to your reasons while you searched out what to say to prove that Job's affliction came for his sins, end quote. It is again not human reason that can discover the mysteries of God, but only the gift of divine inspiration. Hence, though men may search their minds, human reason will never discover the answers to life's greatest problems. And now verse 13 of Job 32. Lest ye should say, and this is in reference to Job's three friends, we have found out wisdom. God thrusts him down, not man. Here we have perhaps the spiritual reason why also Job's friends were never given the wisdom to help Job, simply because they, in prideful human arrogance, would claim, once they were successful, that it had come from themselves. Thus, just as a fool cannot find out God, neither will the wisdom of God be brought to a fool, in order that he may glory in himself. Barnes on this verse. You were not permitted to refute or convince him. For if you had been, you would have been lifted up with pride and would have attributed to yourselves what belongs to God, end quote. What is seen to be true with Job's friends is true of many today. For God will not give any man any spiritual gift if after it is given, the man would attribute the power as coming from himself. Observe, therefore, that God will never have his power work through men if men inwardly desire to take credit for it themselves. He then, who desires praise for himself and not God, will never be given extraordinary power from God. Hence, when any might say, we have found out wisdom, you can be sure that God will deprive them from having any of God's own true wisdom at all, end quote. Barnes on verse 13. God thrusts him down, not man. These are the words of Elihu. The meaning is, God only can drive Job from his position and show him the truth and humble him. The wisdom of man fails. The aged, the experienced, and the wise have been unable to meet his arguments and bring him down from the positions which he has taken. That work can be done only by God himself or by the wisdom which he only can give, God give. Accordingly, Elihu, who proposes to meet the arguments of Job, makes no appeal to experience or observation. He does not ground what he says on the maxims of sages or the results of reflection, but proposes to adduce the precepts of wisdom which God had imparted to him, end quote. Elihu knew that God alone could convict Job of sin, that God alone could take Job off his high perch so that God could deliver him from his pride of heart and so that also he might be delivered from Satan's attacks. Verse 14 now. Now, he hath not directed his words against me, and this is Lihu speaking in reference to Job not speaking against him, neither will I answer him with your speeches. Pulpit commentary on Job 32, 14. Now he hath not directed his words against me. Elihu thinks that he can interfere in the controversy with the better prospect of a good result since he is untouched by any of Job's words and can therefore speak without passion or resentment. 
neither will I answer him with your speeches. He is also going to bring forward fresh arguments, which, as they avoid the line taken by the three friends, may soothe instead of exasperating the patriarch, end quote. Elihu makes it very clear that he had absolutely no role whatsoever in the failed attempts to help Job. His wisdom, Elihu's spiritual wisdom, would be brought from afar and not rely on any of the previously failed arguments of Job's three friends. Job 36.3, and these are Elihu's words, I will fetch my knowledge from afar and will ascribe righteousness to my maker. It is also only when divine wisdom comes solely from the Lord and is not mixed with human wisdom that God can help men. This is why whenever God's word is given to men, either in written form or through the Spirit, then God commands them that they should not add to or take away from anything God has said. Deuteronomy 12, 32. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. And now verse uh, 15 of Job 32. They were amazed, and this is in reference to Job's friends. They answered no more. They left off speaking. Immediately we see the effectiveness of Elihu's spiritually inspired words as Job's three friends were amazed and left off and or stopped speaking, teaching us that when prophecy hits its mark, it will often produce a silence and an amazement in its victims. Hence, when men come to understand that it is truly the Lord speaking to them, and they find themselves unable to defend themselves against God's righteous words, then their mouths will cease speaking. Benson on verse 14, they were amazed. Job's three friends stood mute, like persons amazed, not knowing what to reply to his arguments, and wondering at his bold and confident assertions concerning his integrity and his interest in the favor of God under such terrible and manifest tokens as they thought of them, of God's just displeasure against him, they answered no more, end quote. Where previously Job's friends were filled with conjecture, supposition, and reason, now when exposed to one speaking directly by the Spirit of God, they knew the waters of understanding were far too deep for them. Hence, after all the spiritual confusion, that was produced by human reason, truth would now have its opportunity to utter a knowledge of God clearly, which is exactly what Job needed to hear in order to be reconciled to God. And now Job 33, uh, verse 1, we read, Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, and again, these are Elihu's words, hear my speeches and hearken to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth. My tongue has spoken it in my mouth. My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart, and my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. Amen.